If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. Who was it that introduced this to John Meadows? Was it Shallow? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the first time, well, not the first time, but one of the first times that we met uh, Shallow and we were asking him people in the space that maybe we didn't know about that he likes or recommends and uh, he threw out John Meadows' name out there at that time. And I, at that point, I didn't know who he was. And so I started following him and it was like maybe six months to a year later uh, do we start reaching out to coordinate him coming on the show? Because I liked a lot of the content he was putting mm-hmm. out. You know, he he puts out a lot of good. You know, at, at he's first, a smart guy. Yeah, at first glance, you see him and he looks massive, steroided out, bodybuilder guy. And you and you you know, if you're somebody who is not into that space at all, you probably get turned off right away. But then the deeper you dive into the information that he's providing. He's a really fucking cool guy, and he's very intelligent. Really, really smart. He's got a gnarly physique, too. I mean, the guy's just grainy and shredded looking. Um, but what I liked about him was he's candid yeah. as hell. Like mm-hmm. We asked him anything and everything, and the guy answered very honestly. So he talked about, of course, training, nutrition, and business, but then he talked about anabolic steroid use and drug use, like uh, growth hormone and insulin and EPO and other crazy stuff. Yeah. And he was super open and candid about it. So for you... Hardcore bodybuilding fans, uh, you're going to love this episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun recording. You know, I, of course, I'm into it, so I had a good time with with this guy. So if you want to check, and he's got a great YouTube and Instagram, by the way. If you want to check him out on YouTube or Instagram, both of them can be found at Mountain Dog One, Mountain Dog and the number one. Got a lot of videos, uh, got a lot of posts, got a lot of followers, so you get some value out of following him, so you should definitely go check him out. And then his website is mountaindogdiet.com. And then uh, how many days left until the, the promo is over, Doug? Five days left. So there's only five days for the one year of free access to the Mind Pump private forum if you enroll in any MAPS program. So here's what you do. You enroll in a MAPS program. Pick the one that best suits your goals. So let's say your goal is to look like a bodybuilder. Let's say you want to shape and sculpt your body aesthetically. Well, that would be MAPS aesthetic. Well, let's say rather than that, you're more interested in performance. You want to be able to move. You want to be able to jump. You want to be able to twist. You want lateral stability. You want speed and power. Well, that'd be MAPS performance. Let's say you just want raw strength and size. Well, that might be MAPS anabolic. Let's say you want to have a lot of fun in the gym, but you also like raw strength and size. MAPS strong maybe for you. We have correctional exercise programs like MAPS Prime and MAPS Prime Pro and much more Check out all of our programs. Find the one that's for you at mapsfitnessproducts.com. And this month, five days left. You have five days left. If you enroll in any of those programs, you'll get a free year of access to our private uh, forum. In the forum is personal trainer, personal trainer, excuse me, fitness enthusiasts. There's doctors. And then, of course, the best part is Justin, Adam, myself, and Doug are on there daily to answer questions and help people out. Again, go check that out, mapsfitnessproducts.com. And that's it. So without any further ado, here we are interviewing John Meadows. Hold on, what is that? I hear that too. It was like a... What is that? Was that you breathing? No, I'm not breathing right now. (laughs) All right. It's usually you. It's usually... This is Adam the whole time. (sighs) (sighs) I have not been like that in a long time. I don't know, dude. When I was competing, dude. When you're walking around with fucking... Yeah, you're right. (sighs) When you're like walking around like that, it's hard not to go... (sighs) 
Look at this. You know what? He's not breathing dude, crazy. Jordan Shallow every time. Yeah, like, with jo- <sighs> Jordan Shallow breathes. Yeah, with Jordan. He's a heavy breather. Yes, mouth he's a mouth. He's a, yeah. He does a little bit of the mouth. He's breathing. a big guy. Yeah. He's a really big guy. But John, you're 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 jacked. I don't yeah, know, you're breathing all crazy. Man, I'm I'm uh I'm only two twenty five. I used to roll around two sixty. So oh my, oh, how tall are you? Five seven, no good day. <laughs> yeah. Two sixty five seven. Yeah. Yeah, you were stacked. as wide as you were tall. I took a lot of pop tarts, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you man, you earlier we were joking around and you were, you were saying you had to go to the bathroom and then you made a fart joke and you, and you said you can't fart because you don't have a col a colon. That's that right. just blew my mind. Right yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Tell us that whole story about how that all happened. I read a little bit about on your biography about that whole deal. Right. What was that? What was it? What happened with that whole deal there? Yeah, so in 2005, I was preparing for the Mr. USA, and about five weeks out doing my cardio, I noticed that I get about 30 minutes into my cardio, and I felt like I had to use the bathroom, right? So I'd run back to the house, and nothing would come out. I'd be like, man, that's weird. And then it kind of turned into like a little bit of abdominal pain. So it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And then pretty soon, uh, anytime I'd eat a meal, there'd be, there'd be about 10 or 15 minutes where it physically hurt. So I thought, ah, this is just stress induced, right? You know, most of these, this, these stomach issues we have, a lot of it's just brought on by stress. So I figure I'll go do the contest. I'll come back. I'll be fine. So I went and did the Mr. USA. I, by that time I couldn't even really eat. I got home like, okay, okay, cool. Now it's over. I'm going to be fine. And then two or three days later, um, I was I went to see my doctor, and he saw me walking into his office, and he called the life squad. He's like, he's, he's known me for many, many years. He's like, something bad is happening. What, so, what, so he could tell right away by looking at he you? He looked at me. What I mean, was it that he saw? I don't know. Okay. This hmm. dude, I mean, he's he's been my doctor for, since 1999. He knows me really well. Okay. So the ambulance comes against me. They take me to the hospital, and the hospital runs me through a whole battery of tests, and they say, we know what's wrong with him. He's constipated. I said, I don't know if I believe that because I haven't ate for three or four days. Like, I don't, I don't, there's something. So then I went to saw, I saw some more specialists and they said, oh, he has ulcerative colitis. And I said, I don't know. I've got a little bit of a medical background. I'm not really showing any symptoms of colitis at all. This is something else. Now you don't know what you're talking about. Trust me, you have colitis. I said, okay. So long story short, the pain got worse and worse and worse. Another couple, uh, another couple of days later, I was back in the, in the emergency room. By that point, I was kind of curled up in a ball, and this is where it gets real, real intense. So I'm in a, I'm in a, a bed, laying there in a hospital bed, and I said, "Oh, I think something bad's about to happen." And I stand up, and a blob of coagulated blood comes out of my butt, mm. and it lands on the hospital floor. And oh god, that had to scare the shit out of you, like literally. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at that, and I'm just like. I'm looking at that. I can feel myself getting kind of light at it. I'm like, I'm done. That's it. Like, there's that, like, this is the end of my life. And then I see the nurse looks at it and I just see her eyes and she takes off running out of the room. I'm like, oh, this is it. I'm 30 in my early 30s. <clears throat> I had a good life, but it's over. So my wife was with me and I said, You have a notebook with you? So she has a notebook. I said, I want you to, I'm going to give you some messages to give to my friends. So, I start giving her messages like, you know, make sure you tell James I'm going to miss him. <laughs> so, I mean, in my mind, I'm done. Wow. So the doctors come back in, they put me on the bed, and they, they're they running down the hall with me. And the next thing I know, I wake up in ICU. And uh, there's all these pretty nurses in there. And I'm and it's and like, <clears throat> it was the weirdest thing in the world because I woke up and I thought I was, I, I, rem, I remembered where I had left off. 
I'm like, am I live? And they're like, yeah, you're live. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, you're, you're live. And I was so happy because I thought I was going to die, right? So I'm super happy. And the nurse's like, wow, we've never seen somebody so happy in here. And I was like, no, you don't. I mean, I was thought I was pretty sure I was going to die. And, you know, I had tubes in me and I had an ileostomy that they, they did a temporary ileostomy. And so they, you know, the doctor comes in, he's like, yeah, your um, colon was, there was so much blood. Well, I just got rid of the whole thing. And now your ileum's connected to your anus. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, well, I guess I need to do some reading up and see what all this stuff means. So that was one of the things actually that drove me to really learn about digestion. You know, I'm like, I probably should know this stuff well now. Do you know, now leading up to this, were you not using the, were you not going to the bathroom? Were there any signs besides the pain that there was something going on? Have you ever had, like, have you ever ate so much fish, you had that oily stuff come out when yeah. you the bathroom? I had that happening. Okay. But as a bodybuilder, you think, well, that's just, that's just the-, the I'm eating a lot of fish. Yeah, right. That's what you think. You think I'm eating a lot of fish, but it turns out it was the colon trying to kind of clean itself and just trying to fix something. And, hmm. you know, long story short, I went through a- a ton of tests, man. They stuck a camera down my throat and my hip. I mean, everything you can think of. So much, so many blood tests. And the, they couldn't figure out what's wrong, which is kind of scary because when you don't know what's wrong, it's kind of like, well, how do I know it's not going to happen again? Mm-hmm. And so they sent some of the tissue. They sent a, 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 a tissue to the Mayo Clinic. And Mayo Clinic said, yeah, we've got nine cases of this on file. So they tell me what it was, idiopathic myoentomal hyperplasia mesenteric vein. I'm like, that's a lot of big words. I have yeah. no clue what that means. Can you tell me what that means? That's basically saying what it is, but they don't know what causes it. Right, idiopathic. Idiopathic. So no, no cause. And um, which so- is, Which is a scientist's way of saying we don't know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. They're <laughs> clueless. Long-winded so, way of like, saying it. I'm not feeling very good about that, right? And- I look up the other cases uh, and I see the symptoms. I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what I had. Like everything that these people went through is what I felt. Hmm. So the good news was out of the nine cases, only two died, seven lived. The two that died weren't as fortunate to me to be in the hospital when they had an issue, but it was a disease that affects the sigmoid part of your colon specifically. But at that point it went so long and they kind of just veins literally just like explode. Wow. It builds up in them and, in the rest of my digestive system, the veins and arteries are like, you look like you're 18 years old. It's just those specific uh, mesenteric uh, veins that had this. So it was really bizarre. It was pretty intense. Now, anytime a, a bodybuilder, especially a pro bodybuilder, a high-level competitive bodybuilder has some kind of a health issue, people point to the bodybuilding lifestyle, including the food, the high-protein intake, the supplements, and including the anabolic steroids. Was there anything that you were doing that you think could have contributed to any of this? Or were you ever, at any point, were you sitting there going, oh, man, did I do this to myself? Oh, 100%, man. 100%. Um, You know, I've always been a big believer that if you're going to use GH, you want to use pharma-grade GH, right? You Mm. want to use the good stuff. And at the time, I was using some generic GH, which is known to have impurities. So I'm thinking that I take some GH to cause this. Mm. You know, I was experimenting with EPO at the time, Epigen. And you know that can increase your red blood cell count. I'm thinking, did that have anything to do with it? Mm. So I don't know. I mean, and I was eating a lot of food, you know. I mean, that was back when I was younger and I was pounding down food because that's what we were taught. We were taught that you have to, that there is no, forget about digestion. You just have to get calories down any way you can get them down. So that's how I had tried to grow through those, you know, my younger years. I just, it's a game of calories, Mm -hmm. right? You just got to eat more and more and more. So you know, not paying any attention to your digestion or anything like that. So 
yeah, I mean, I thought about all those things and, you know, it's like, do I ever want to compete again? You know, mm. and it, at some point I thought, and I was terrified, but I was like, let me try this again with a little different approach. And luckily nothing ever bad happened again and everything was fine, but man, it was scary as hell. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. How did you uh, change your approach coming back? Well, you know, so I looked at it a lot of different ways. Um, I looked at it from the food part and we used what I call, I just called it the power shove method, you know, just power shove calories down. So I started paying attention and learning about prebiotics and probiotics and things like that. And, you know, uh, helping your gut flora and the benefit that that has. And I didn't really care about those things before, but all of a sudden I thought, man, then maybe this, maybe I should look into this. You know, if you're full, you don't eat again, right? Let your food digest. Some of it was common sense. Some of it was educating myself from a chemical perspective. Is like, you know, do I need that EPO? I probably don't need that. Am I ever going to use generic growth hormone again? Absolutely not. So, um, honestly, the chemicals that I use in bodybuilding, I made sure they were from a doctor with a prescription and, and you know, clean, not somebody making them in a bathtub. And then, you know, I had another perspective too. I had, um, I was working at Chase at the time. I was running very large projects for J.P. Morgan Chase. And I think it was a pretty stressful position. So I'm a big believer that stress can absolutely destroy your body, mm -hmm. just destroy everything. Mm -hmm. So I had a little different perspective too. When I woke up in ICU, uh, what I used to consider a big deal wasn't such a big deal to me now. You know, I, so I'd go to work at Chase and whereas before, you know, I'm running these projects with these big teams and people have issues and, pro and, and you know, problems come up. And Chase was a very intense atmosphere, very intense, very production oriented. Um, the culture was very intense. And so everything was a really big deal. You'd stay there, you'd work until something was done. And there was no, really no working hours. You just worked hard nonstop. So I went back to Chase, had a very different perspective, and it actually helped my career because then I became the guy who was calm under fire, but my perspective was very different, right? It wasn't, you know, are customers being impacted right now? No, okay, well then go home, get some rest, come back, we'll fix it tomorrow. It was a, I, so I changed the way I, you know, my perception of things was very different. And to this day, I'm, I'm a very low stress guy. Like things just aren't that big of a deal to me now that used to be, you know? Um, so, you know, I looked at it from a bunch of different perspectives, like stress, what, what, what's really a big deal, mm -hmm. you know, losing a family member is a big deal. Um, but trying to decide whether you're going to get, you know, uh, tune in oil or tune in water is not so much of a big deal. Right. And then, you know, for the food, the chemical part and the food part, all that stuff, you know, kind of played into my thoughts moving forward. Yeah, mm. years ago I had uh, my body rebelled on me a little bit, and um, it changed my approach completely to my training and to my nutrition. And the side effect of that, and not that I was even focusing on it, because at the time I was just want I just want to get healthy, which I'm sure at some right after that you're like I just want to get healthy. The side effect of that was I became so much more in tune with my body that I'm able now to get better levels of just fitness and conditioning and aesthetics than I ever was before. Because I'm more in tune. Have, are you? Have you found that with yourself as well? Absolutely, a thousand percent. And you know what I can do now. Uh, you know, I, I probably have 150 grams of protein a day now. You, you have any bodybuilder in here? They'll tell you. Oh, guy, your size is going to have 300 grams. Yeah. Easy. Absolutely. Um, I've lost no strength. You know, right before I went to the airport yesterday, I was hack squatting rock bottom with six plates for reps. 
Same thing I did when I was in my 20s, eating 6,000 calories a day. Um, yeah, I mean, you get in tune with your body and things start working for you instead of against you. I, I find the exact same thing, for sure. Yeah, it's it's some of the stuff that bodybuilding and training teaches us that is valuable also sometimes becomes, in my opinion, um, a big problem. Like one of them is, like you will, you'll find no athlete that can be as disciplined when it comes to nutrition as a pre-contest bodybuilder. Uh, the, the discipline that a pre-contest bodybuilder has is just, uh, it's almost not human. The problem with that then becomes the ignoring the signals of the body and just push, push, push. push. That becomes a problem. So there's that kind of that dual, you know, that dual duality of it, um, which I think is, is a big issue. And then some of the other stuff is the ex- excesses. Like we just talked about protein. Like what are some of the biggest mistakes you see with with people trying to build muscle and get stronger and all that stuff that now you know is just bullshit? Well, number one thing is people want it to happen overnight. Um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the culture was very different. It was, I'm going to do what it takes for as long as it takes to get there. And it might be 10 years. It might be 15 years. I did 16 pro, pro qualifiers before I turned pro. And if you talk to people now, you know, I get the guys that come to me now like, hey, man, I want to be a pro. I'm like, okay, have you ever competed? They're like, no. Like, you just, you don't understand what it takes. And so what happens when you have that mindset is if you're, if you want to get there that fast, it becomes an extreme game. It's, I'm going to pound a ton of drugs. You know, I'm going to pound a ton of food and I'm going to make this happen overnight. And you see that happen. You see guys that kind of, they're shooting stars and, you know, they they become very well known and then they disappear. Mm -hmm. And you don't hear about these guys. I know what goes on. With, with my peers, these other pros, a lot of kidney problems, people on dialysis, and you don't really hear about it, but there's a lot of pros that are frying their bodies, right? As opposed to taking a little more intelligent approach. It might take you a few more years, but you know what? You'll probably live an extra 15 years. You know, mm-hmm. who knows? But So I think the number one place that I always start with uh, when I'm talking to younger guys is trying to teach them patience and persistence. Like, man, this is going to take some time, right? It's going to take some time. And then and then, you know, we were, we were always taught to power shove food and things like that. So it was, you know, I used to train in a gym <clears throat> when I was in college. It was a world gym. It was the best gym in Columbus, Ohio. I actually transferred colleges just to train beside train at that gym. I worked out there once uh, when I went to go watch the Arnold Classic. The world, yeah. that, that gym is amazing. That gym was awesome. Yeah. It's a bingo thing place now. <laughs> um, that gym was awesome. That's mm. where I grew up. Mm. And um, there was right across the street, there was a buffet. So I would train, you know, I was training with some powerlifters. Th- these guys, so when I was in my early 20s, um, there was a hardcore group of guys there that lifted. There were bodybuilders and powerlifters. There were people there that would compete in a bodybuilding show and a powerlifting show on the same day, on the same weekend. <laughs> they were Just savages. These dudes were animals. And, you know, I was, you know, 20, 21 years old, and they saw how hard I worked. And these, these were all these big black guys, right? Mm. And they all, they're little white boy Johnny, man, that boy can work, you know? So they liked me. They kind of took me under their wing. So we would train, you know, and then we would walk across the street to the buffet and it was pile up as many chicken breasts as you can on the plate. You know, so Big Nick would eat 14 chicken breasts. Big Phil would eat 16 chicken breasts. Are um, these real numbers you just throwing out? No, no, these are real numbers. <laughs> At I mean, one sitting? Oh yeah, no, these, <laughs> these guys are like... How many grams of protein is that, Adam? That's like, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like, a lot. That's, yeah, 500, 600 grams right oh there gosh. in one sitting. <laughs> these are, I mean, these guys were, they were animals, man. I mean, they were animals. And I'd be like, oh, there's four. Can I get five down? You know, so we would just eat and eat and eat. And, 
you know, sometimes before we, okay, let's go to Bob Evans before we train. I'm like, all right. So, you know, we're getting the biscuits and gravy and biscuits and gravy and more and more and more and just pounding down calories, you know, but it was, it was very different. We also trained really, you know, people now they're so scared of overtraining. And I'm like, if you walk into any gym, the last thing you see is overtraining. You just see people <laughs> texting. Like, it just cracks me up. Everybody's so scared to overtrain. I'm like, you guys have no idea. First of all, overtraining doesn't happen in one workout. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a period of time and people don't even really know what overtraining really is. But um, the mentality is very different now, too. So going back to your original question, people need don't be so scared to just work hard. Like, if you tell a guy now to take two sets to failure, they're like, are you sure, man? Are you sure my CNS can recover from two sets to failure? Oh my God, gee, many Christmas guys. Come on, man. I mean, what I like about going to the gym, what I've always loved is I always, lo- I always, I actually take a little pride in being able to do things that I don't think other human beings can do. And that may not be pushing the heaviest weight. It may be taking yourself past a level of pain that most people just can't handle. And I always took a lot of pride in that. You know, I could do put 900 on a leg press and find a way to do 40 reps with it. Stand up, catch my breath, and, you know, I'd have 400 on a squat rack. You know, we would actually superset leg presses and squats. Because oh. why? Because it's retarded, right? <laughs> Nobody else can do that. And I had, you know, very, when I was in my early 20s, I had 30-inch legs that were very good. I mean, they were at the top of the national level even at a young age. And that was because that's what, I, that's, how, that's what my mentality was. It was, I was smart enough to know that I didn't have the, wide clavicles and a narrow hip structure. Like I'm going to have to put on a lot of hard conditioned, gnarly muscle to ever be competitive as a pro. I knew that from a young age. I knew I wasn't flex wheeler, mm. but I looked up to guys like Tom Platts, the guys who really could take their training to another level, man. Like they would not leave the gym until they knew they had won. And that's kind of the mentality I always had. It was, I'm not leaving this gym until I've, you know, put everything I had into it. And a lot of people would watch my videos and they'd say, you're doing too much. I'd say, okay, that's fine. I'll just keep doing too much, you know, but it's, it's working. You know, you know, you always try to learn and my approach is a little different now, but I wouldn't for one second take back the way I've trained for many, many years. Don't you think that it's, or what I've seemed to find is that, like you said, you walk in the gym and it's very rare that you see a, a bunch of, especially in like a, a, a 24-hour fitness or a basic gym, you know, there's not a lot of signs of overtraining, especially in the weight room area. But in the competitive bodybuilding world, that's where I would see if something like that would be abused because of the mentality. I think the average population needs one message and then like the bodybuilding community needs another message. I used to say this about even protein intake, like most of the clients that I got that was a, you know, 40-year-old soccer mom with three kids, just she was under consuming protein. And so I was always trying to get her to eat more protein. But then when I was talking to my peers in the bodybuilding world, I was like, whoa, dude, that's way over what you need to. So it seems like there's this, you know, there's this conflicting message because there's one group of people that are probably abusing protein, abusing intensity. And then there's a other group of people that need more intensity in their life Mm -hmm. and need more protein in their life. I think that's probably what makes it really difficult is you hear guys like us have a conversation like this and people are going, well, fuck, what is it? Do I need to push harder or do I need to back off or do I need to eat more protein or eat less protein? Yeah. Right. I, and yeah. I find that that's what's most common. It seems to be that, 
you know, what, what we tend to gravitate towards or what we whatever cult that would group that we fall into. There's extremes in, in both those, whether that be the lack of intensity or too much of intensity or the lack of protein or too much protein. Well, I think people don't realize that there's a right dose. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not more is better. It's not like money. You know, the more you get, the better. It's it's there's a right dose, the right amount. So like talking about protein intake, for example, at some point your body becomes so desensitized. You're just, you might as well be eating carbs and fats. You're just using it as energy, except that proteins take a little bit more processes to go through the body and can actually be detrimental at the extremely high levels. I know, you know, most people eat high protein diets, totally fine. But if you're a, you know, a a bodybuilder and you're consuming four and 500 grams. I remember reading articles about like guys, you know, the, you know, rest in peace, like uh, uh, Nasser El Sambadi would consume five, 600 grams of protein, uh, you know, a day. There's no studies to show what that can do to you long-term. And there's also no studies to show that that's even, uh, you know, beneficial, beneficial right. you know, it's kind of that right dose. Are you starting to figure that out now about, uh, about your body? Like, okay, there's a right dose where my body just seems to do the best. I think so. And the other thing is just because something works for you at one point in time, your own body changes too. Good point. And, Very um, good point. you know, I feel I, my typical breakfast is two eggs and two pieces of toast. And people are like, man, that's crazy. That's not enough food. I'm like, I feel great mm-hmm. with that breakfast. So, and, and you know, and sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm going to do it like the old days. I'm going to eat six eggs and I do that. And I feel terrible. You know, it's not saying that six eggs is wrong for somebody. It's just where you're at at the time. Um, yeah, I think, um, again, and, and again, to my earlier point, uh, just because something works at one point in your life doesn't mean that's what's going to be right. So to me, this is a constant game of just like, where am I at now? What's going on? And you're just always in this evaluation mode, like all the time, nonstop, even now. Even now, you know, even with a workout, with diets, with stress, with sleep, I'm a big proponent in sleep. Um, I do a lot of seminars where I talk about sleep and sleep quality and all that stuff. I mean, all these things all together, you realize as you get older, like, you know, you can't ignore. The older you get, when you ignore one of these things, it has a real big snowball effect. Yeah, it's compounding for it sure. It compounds, right? <laughs> So a lot of the things now are, are very important to me. I didn't used to think about before. I just mm-hmm. didn't really care. What do you think are some of the big missing pieces in in bodybuilding uh, in bodybuilders? I guess regimens. You think like digestion and sleep or two? Because I know a lot a lot of bodybuilders talk about. You're hearing more and more now talk about Definitely digestive not. health. I know we had Stan uh, efforting on the show, yeah, yeah. and he was talking a lot about five ten years ago. But there was no no talk about you know di- you know how to digest your food properly, taking things like probiotics and food quality. It was only about macros, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and right. calories. Do you think that that's still a big missing piece? And what do you think happens when, when bodybuilders start to figure that out for themselves? What do you think happens to that? Well, Stan is definitely right. Things are much, much different now. Um, you know, I remember in around 2007, I was on a board. This is kind of where our, my name kind of started to get out there. It was professionalmuscle.com was, was the board. And there were a lot of pros on it. It was a great board. And I wrote this, I was sitting at Chase one day and I was, I'd been learning um, a lot about things like farmed versus uh, salmon versus wild-caught salmon and grass-fed beef versus conventionally fed beef. I'd been learning a lot about this. Actually, through a doctor friend of mine, uh, Dr. Serrano, who was teaching me this stuff in the 90s, and then I didn't, I'd never even heard of that. 
Like, mm-hmm. what's an omega three enriched egg? Like, how do you do that? Like, are you feeding your chickens fish? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know. Right, this right, is right. all new to me. So I started. Um, I I mean, I I found a farm. I started started drinking raw milk. I, I found another guy who had chickens. I started in, and I've been I've always been very religious about my my labs, my blood work. And so I started watching the changes in my labs. Like, man, this got better. This got better. This got really. Better. Was very very and just from changing the quality, not yeah, necessarily the. It was a very very big change, mm. very big changes in my lipid panel, in my, you know, hemoglobin A one C, fasting glucose, all that stuff, all started changing for the better. And the nurse at the doctor's office, she's sitting there looking at this stuff, and she's like, "What are you doing different? Like, I don't understand how this stuff is changing." And I, I said, "Well, I started cooking in coconut oil," and she's like, "Well, isn't that?" mostly saturated fat. And I said, yeah, but it's a little different. You can't just look at it as a bad fat. There's some very, very good qualities to it. You know, I'm getting my chickens from a farm now. She's like, you're eating all the yolks. Aren't those bad for you? I'm like, that's debatable. You know, we can talk about that. I don't necessarily think they're bad for you though. And the meats and our, so this stuff like kind of opened my eyes. So in 2007, on that message board, I wrote, this This is the kind of diet I'm following. And if you guys want to try it, try it. But for me, it's worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel really good. And um, so people gravitated toward that. And my handle on the internet was Mountain Dog. And that's because I love Bernese Mountain Dogs. I've always had Bernese Mountain Dogs, just a dog breed I love. And people started calling that Mountain Dog Diet this and that, that name. People just started <laughs> calling it that. And that's kind of how that whole name came came to be hmm. was from that message board so um back in 2007 you know people were like wow man this is different like i've ne- i didn't know that you know farm raised tilapia might not be the healthiest fish in the world because nobody was even looking at that stuff so it kind of started and it started growing from there and, and now i think people are much more aware of this stuff and um but for me it was you know, I'm one of those guys I love to learn, but I want to see what it's doing in my body. And those those labs were very good indicators, clear indicators that there were some positive changes taking place from those changes. When you do these, because I know you do a lot of seminars, right? We, we, we um, Our good friend, uh, Dr. Jordan Shallow, recommended you um, because you guys did. Are these the things you talk about in your seminar? What are some of the things you cover? I cover everything. I do workshops, two, three-day workshops where we talk about training, we talk about sleep, we talk about stress, we talk about nutrition. I talk about drugs. I talk about everything. Nothing's mm-hmm. off limits. And if I if it's a topic I don't know something about, I just tell people I, I'm not educated on that. I'm not going to give you an opinion. I can give you an opinion, but you need to know I don't really, I'm not educated on it. So I try to cover, and what I do when I go to seminars is like, I'm not, I'm not saying I know everything and I'm right. I just share my experience. Like these are my experiences. Take it for what it's worth. If you think some of this stuff, you might want to try it, try it. If you don't, hey, that's cool too. Thanks for coming to my seminar. But I just try to share a lot of the experience I've had. You know, I started competing when I was 13 years old. So I've been, you know, I'm 46 now. So I've, I've been around this for a long time. And I think some of the things I've learned, I mean, I, I think I've learned a lot, but I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of mistakes. And I think when you've made a lot of mistakes and actually learn from them, then you can build a pretty good base of knowledge to share with people. What made you want to start competing at such a young age? That's that's most most magazines start, really magazines. I was yeah. into pro wrestling, right? Remember the Road Warriors? Oh yeah, hey, yeah. Oh, dude, Road Warrior Hawk and Road Warrior Animal. Uh, <laughs> man, I wanted to be Road Warrior Hawk. He was awesome. And you know there was uh, the guys back then. You guys remember Tony Atlas? Yeah. 
You know, junkyard dog. Uh, so have so you guys got to check out my Instagram. So I'm doing some ultimate warrior chair shots. I'm hitting people in the back. I just <laughs> yes. I just hit Mike Rasheed a couple weeks ago. Yeah. You guys know Mike, right? Um, I'm having. Do you know guys? You know Juji Mufu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Juji came and saw me, and I blasted him with a chair. Um, so, anyways, I I love professional wrestling, and you know there was Ivan Putsky, there was all kinds of big guys back then, right? And so I always went, uh, my grandmother took me to the, to the store and I would go to the magazine rack and I would get the pro wrestling magazines. I would just sit down. I would sit there and read them while she shopped. And one day I saw a muscle and fitness. So I pulled it down and looked at it and boom, just like that. I was like, it was, it was uh, Lee Haney. And I was like, I want to look like that. You know, I wasn't getting picked on. I wasn't trying to impress girls. There was just something about the look of the muscle that I really so what happened was I saved up and I bought one of those magazines and I took it to school with me and I'm showing everybody in class and I'm thinking they're all going to get excited. They're going to be like, oh, that's awesome. And every person to the T said, that's gross. I don't want to look like yeah. that. Every single person. And I was like, now I want to do it even more because I don't care what you think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, from a very young age, I, I wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. Um, and I watched ESPN was was they had the Mr. Olympia on TV that year's a 1985 Mr. Olympia in Brussels, Belgium. Is that yeah. the one they drug tested? Was that the first? No, one? that came later. That was later. That on. came okay. later. Um, but um, it was when Lee Haney won, and of course that's when Gaspar was he just won the nationals, and he was in his early 20s. He got third place, and then you had Albert Beckles, who nobody really knew how old he was, but he, they suspected he was around 55 at the time. He got second place. So a lot of great bodybuilders in that era. And I watched that over and over. And I can tell you the top 10 placings right off the top of my head from that show. And then also in 1986 when they had it in uh, Columbus, actually. And that was when Tom Platts brought the audience to this fevered pitch where they were all standing and screaming. But anyways, so right then, boom, I wanted to do this. I competed at 13 years old. I was 119 pounds. And um, I just loved it, man. And uh, I was in a lot of sports. And uh, I really wanted to be a pro football player. And then I realized I don't have the talent to – go to the next level mm -hmm. in that sport i was also in track uh wasn't talented enough in track to go to the next level but bodybuilding was something where i thought you know what if i work really hard at this i might be able to do okay and it seemed like a sport where i could overcome some genetic flaws and possibly be successful i still wasn't sure but i knew i loved the way it made me feel i knew i loved to work hard by the time i went out i left high school i was squatting 500 pounds Damn. And at the time, I was natural. I'd never taken a drug before. I'd never seen a drug before. Um, but I was working hard. I mean, football practice, we'd run the mile. I'd win the mile on the team. And then we'd go into this weight room, and I would out-squat everybody, too. And um, it was just it was just uh, that pushing myself and that, that muscle, like, was just – it was like a disease. I caught it, and I could never get rid of it again. <laughs> At what When did you start uh, using anabolics? Because you said you were natural throughout high school, squatting 500 pounds, which is insane. Uh, at what age did you start using anabolics and how fast did you see your body change after that? Yeah, so it was in my early 20s and I was in college. My, 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 uh, I, I, I was very anti-anabolic. Um, you know, I was one of those guys that said, if you take a shot of testosterone, you're going to die from a heart attack in a week. And I started to educate myself. Um, you guys remember the anabolic reference guide and all those things? Oh, that, man, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Absolutely. Those were like, yeah. I started reading those things, and I thought, man, maybe this stuff isn't as bad as I, I thought it was. Because yeah. you had a lot of the fear stuff going on, too, like Lyle Alzado. Yes, and he, you exactly. Know, he's Death in a Locker Room. Remember that book, Death in yeah, a Locker Room? Yep. The Gold, I think Goldman wrote that book. I think so. Um, but, it was, you know, so I was in that camp. 
I was like, I was a guy, I was like, well, I'm natural. You know, I'm natural. Mm -hmm. I was all proud of being natural. And then I started reading. I was like, hmm, maybe this stuff isn't as bad as I thought. So my weightlifting partner, his dad was a veterinarian, right? So he comes to the gym one day and he's like, John, uh, like, I know you've been reading about all this stuff. And I was looking on my dad's vet truck and he has some Winstraw and Equipoise. And I was like, ooh, that Winstraw sounds good. <laughs> and I was in college, right? So I didn't have a lot of money. And he said, I'll snag a bottle, 30cc bottle of Winstraw for you for 50 bucks. And I was like, cool, I'll put together 50 bucks. So I gave him 50 bucks. I got my 30cc bottle of Winstraw. It was 50 milligrams per milliliter. And I was, uh, let's see, 30, set up 60 shots. Uh, so what I did was I remember I took one shot every other day. So 50 milligrams every other day. That was all I took and I competed and I was in my early twenties and I won the shows I did. I was in the men's class. I was 20 years old. I was almost 21, but I won the light heavyweight and overall with perfect scores in both of the shows I did. And, that, and, that, and that's a relatively low dose of a, of a steroid that was, that's I mean, not even that strong. That's right. That was just Winstrol. That was, that was so 50 milligrams. So one week would be 200 milligrams and the next week would be 150 mm -hmm. milligrams. Did you see, now were you a hyper responder? Cause I know some Absolutely, people. Okay. Man. So Absolutely. Some guys, and we, we should talk about that. Cause some guy, I know guys that'll take a gram of stuff and <laughs> will gain like five pounds. Yeah. And I know other guys that'll just look at a bottle of something and then they'll gain 15 pounds of muscle. Yeah, I was very, I'm very fortunate. Just to be completely candid with you guys, I always responded very well to lower doses. With the first time I took testosterone, um, I saved up some money and I bought uh, six ready jack. These, remember the old salsa on ampules from Mexico? Oh, gosh. You know, the, the ones that came in the 18-gauge yeah. needles. We called them harpoons. <laughs> cannons. Um, or cannons, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I, had, I, bought, I bought six of those. Um, and I took one shot every 10 days. So that was 250 milligrams every 10 days. Now, a normal HRT dose for guys now is usually like, what, 150, 200 milligrams yeah. a week? I took 250 every 10 days, and I blew up. I was like, this is amazing. Like, my coach, I didn't tell him. <laughs> He's like, are you doing anything? I'm like, well... <laughs> I don't know, kind man. Of. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, he's like, well, are you injecting any steroids? I'm like, yeah. He's like, but well, then you are. <laughs> yeah. I go, okay. I thought maybe the dose was so low. I could technically say I'm not yeah. really. But so I did. I took six ampules of Sosanon, man, and just like, bam. Now, what do you think? What do you think that is? Do you think it's like androgen receptor density in the body? Could do you be. think it's because yeah. it's really weird? I, yeah. I, I have this theory that, like, some, especially someone like you, I think part of it, part of it, there's a genetic component that some people are just hyper responders. But then I also think that you laid a very solid yeah, foundation training. before you did that. And so the, so the, the body's just primed. Yeah, yeah, it's just ready for that. And where I, I see the mistake I see a lot of kids do now is, like you said earlier, you alluded to, is just they want the results so fast. It's like they're just starting to get in the gym and like already we're taking 500 milligrams of testosterone. It's like, whoa, dude, why don't you lay a foundation, learn the, the principles and the big rocks in this 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 whole journey of getting huge before you start throwing the chemicals on there. So sometimes I wonder if it was just the path you took that it sounds like you laid a very solid foundation first and then you start, I mean, when you talk about the, the Kai Greens, the Ronnie Coleman's, mm -hmm. like a lot right. of these guys, I mean, they went on pro fucking natural oh, yeah. and right. then they pulled on that and then look what happens, right? So Yeah, and, I, and, and resistance training has been shown in studies if you do it consistently for a long period of time to increase androgen uh, receptor density. So... You're, you are, in essence, priming your body to to hyper-respond. You know, whatever your limit is, whatever your genetic limit is, you're, you're, you're priming it to reach that upper limit 
with how it responds to anabolic hormones. And then you take them and then you get this crazy, because I, I literally know people. I mean, I've been doing, I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years professionally. And I knew guys that would take insane amounts of, of gear and you wouldn't even be able to tell if you, if you looked at them on the street. And I knew other guys that would, you know, the original, uh, the original Mr. Olympia competitors, like, uh, like uh, Larry Scott, mm-hmm. those guys were taking five and 10 milligram tablets of, of, of D-ball, D-ball yeah. a day, which is like, that's nothing. It's like a tic tac, right? <laughs> every single day, and they were. And you obviously look at pictures of Larry Scott, and the guy looked uh, absolutely incredible. So it's really crazy to me that you know how that happens. So you responded just gangbusters right out the gates. I did, um, but you know, and I had built a really good foundation, man. I was training like an animal, and um, so I, you know, there's all kinds of theories. You know, more satellite cells. You know, Schoenfeld talks a lot about that too, um, with with gear and all that, but. I do think that foundation part is critical, man. I really do. Oh, the reason why I feel this way, too, is my own experience. So I was the dumb kid who took it early and too much of it trying to be big. I was a I started training around 16, 17, probably around 17 years old when I when I got serious, real serious around 18, 19, uh, became a trainer by the time I was 20 years old, trained for a couple of years uh, consistently as a personal trainer. And at that time, uh, I was always the skinny kid trying to build muscle. I was convinced that the thing that separated me from the guys that cover the magazines was was steroids. It was oh, that must be what what it is. Like I can't. I've never gotten my body down to three or four percent body fat. I've never looked like this. I've struggled to put muscle on. I I trained hard. I th- I thought I ate well, but the truth was I really I really didn't. I had a very small understanding of programming. I had a very small understanding of nutrition. Yet I thought I did, and I went the anabolic route. And I took a fuck ton. And I actually didn't see hardly any results. I didn't see shit, really. In fact, it just made me leaner. I got lean, I got lean mm-hmm. and strong. Like, I was strong in the gym. All of a sudden, I was lifting more weights. But I didn't get the results I wanted. I didn't put on 10 pounds or 30 pounds of muscle like I was chasing it for. And I tried it two or three times and had a terrible experience and just was very frustrated with it. Now, what? fast forward 10 years later of education and training and laying a foundation, and then I'm like, oh, okay, I started to piece this together. So when I was competing... And I first started, I mean, I was taking 250 milligrams of testosterone and I competed and made all the way to the professional level at that dosage. It wasn't until I became a pro did I start to take 500 milligrams of testosterone. And that's all I had to take to be on stage with the the best of the best. And it was like, really, the answer wasn't the drugs. It was I didn't really understand nutrition. I didn't really understand programming. I didn't have a solid foundation when I was 21 years old yet. It took those years of understanding nutrition, years of programming, and years of just time under the iron to lay a foundation. And then my body seemed to respond. So that's I tend to lean that direction that I feel like, sure, there's some of a genetic component that some guys are responders, but I really feel like the guys that respond very, very well are the ones that really laid the foundation well, and the ones that don't tend to really be missing the other pieces that are as important, if not more important than the drugs. Well, when I've talked to other pros, I used to think that they were lying when they'd say, no, 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 they'd say things to me like, amateurs take more than the pros do. The, 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 <laughs> like They would tell me stuff like that. We interviewed uh, uh, Ben Pikulski, good friend of ours, and we, did, we had this conversation around food. And I remember we were sitting around, and I was under the impression that a pro bodybuilder must have this incredible digestive system where they could just eat 10,000 calories and digest it. Because if I tried to eat 10,000 calories, there's no way I would be able to do it. And he says, no. He goes, you're totally wrong. 
guys at my level are able to eat less food Absolutely. and get more out of it. Yep. And my mind was just, it just fucking blew. All of us. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. of our minds. And I'm like, of course, there's no way you can eat 10,000 calories a day every day and, and be able to compete. Nobody can do that. It's the ones that can do the least amount and get the most out of it. So yeah. now I know in the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, bodybuilders used to cycle their, their, their steroid use. And then it became popular in the nineties, especially during the Dorian area to not cycle. Right, right. Is that, is that the thing now? Do people just not go off anymore? Well, it used to be. So when I, even when I started, my thought was this, I want to, even when I made the choice to use Winstraw and to, to go that route, I, I still, in my mind, I said, okay, I'm in my off seasons, I'm still going to train natural because I want to build as much naturally as I can. So the first several years I competed with the aid of with gear, I only use it pre-contest. To, and my thought was I'm going to maintain muscle. I don't mm-hmm. want to lose it when I'm on this low-calorie plan. And then it became, the, the school of thought became, well, you need to be off uh, as much as you're on. So if you're on 12 weeks, then you need to be off 12 weeks. So then that's what we started doing. And then it became popular. It was, okay, you need a six-week break after a show. And then you can kind of get back on. And then it continued to morph. And then it was, well, after a show, your body's primed. And now you should keep jamming stuff, which I never did, by the way. And I think that's not probably the best approach. And then it's, you never come off. So most of the guys now never come off. Um, they go back to an HRT dose, which many times is so still- They just go up and down. They but just they don't go, go up off. and down. Right. Yeah. And, like, and eventually you shut your own system down. I shut mine down probably in 2002 or three. Um, because I used to come off my my philosophy is always if you can recover your own body naturally through PCT then always do that mm-hmm. as long as you can try to hold on to that um, so that's what I did and then I got to the point where even PCT didn't do anything so that's when I had to switch to HRT and everybody who get goes down that route they eventually will get to that position where they shut their own body down even if you're using conservative doses just over time it just mm-hmm. happens it's not often that we have someone that is able to speak so candidly about this stuff. So uh, I love asking these kinds of questions. What do, what do anabolics do for you like testosterone and the derivatives versus what do things like growth hormone and insulin do for you? Because it's not just anabolics that, that bodybuilders use. There's a lot of compounds. You had even mentioned EPO, which I'd like to get into as well, because I did not know bodybuilders even messed with that. I knew that was like an endurance athlete yeah, uh, right. drug. So what are the what are they all what are the differences and what they like what are, what's the difference between taking an anabolic what does that do to your body versus taking growth hormone versus taking insulin? Well, ideally, what you're looking for is this beautiful synergy, right, of all these different things happening at once. And you know, I'll start with growth hormone. Growth hormone was kind of a game changer for me. And you've I know you've had some really bright people on this show, and there are a lot of people who would probably tell you growth hormone doesn't help you build muscle. And they're going to point to studies that show that. But I'm, I'll give you my experience. My experience was uh, the first time I used growth hormone was preparing for the 1999 Mr. USA. And it was crazy expensive, crazy expensive. And I was, um, I was, in, I was working as a project manager, an entry-level project manager back at that time. I didn't have a lot of money. So I had to save a lot of money. And I was, in, was able to take two IUs of Humatrope, which to this day I still say is the best growth hormone, after I trained five days a week. So I took 10 IUs a week. That's not very much. Okay. okay. That's what I took, 10 IUs a week. And as I dieted for the Mr. USA, the year before I was a light heavyweight, I got crushed at nationals. I didn't make the top 15 as a light heavyweight. Uh, there was like 42 guys in class, but I got my butt kicked. I came back in 1999 
as a heavyweight. And I mean, I was in the first call out and people didn't even know who I was. And that's hard. To, in the 90s, you know from following Bobby, it was hard as a nobody to be in the first call out. And I competed at 207. So I, and then the year before, I was a soft 196 in nationals. And I mean, just to be honest, I really think growth hormone helped do that. Uh, I maintained like all the muscle I had when I was dieting and I ended up being 10, 11 pounds heavier. So for me, it was, okay, this stuff is pretty good at helping you maintain muscle, but what about building it? And as I got older, you know, you go to the shows and you talk to people and they're like, yeah, I take nine, I use a Sterostim after I train or blah, 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 before bed, in the morning, whatever. I started realizing the guys were taking a lot more GH than I was at the national level. At the time, I wasn't really talking to any pros for the most part, but the, uh, the, the amateurs were taking a lot of stuff because they wanted to be a pro. So, you know, I experiment with higher doses, four IUs, six IUs, and I found that at that six to nine IU dose, you know, your body, the volume of the muscle, the roundness of the muscle is very different. Now, is all, is all that water retention in the muscle? I don't know. It's debatable. Um, you know, certain growth hormones tend to make you hold a little water than other growth hormones. You know, humotrope, I don't, I still to this day haven't met anybody who had any water retention from humotrope. Serostem, yeah, maybe they get a little bit watery. But you definitely had, at a minimum, a more voluminous, round, bubbly look to the muscle with higher doses of growth hormone. And I think, I tend to think people have more muscle mm. when they take higher doses. So I always saw growth hormone. You got to be careful with growth hormone, though, because it is, it's such a powerful uh, fat burner, fat liberator. You know, you have all these fatty acids in your bloodstream. It actually can make you insulin resistant. That's actually the mechanism that makes people insulin resistant is because they have so much fat in their blood. You know, if you take animals in a lab, they're giving them a lot of, they're injecting them with a lot of, or they're feeding them with a lot of fat and carbs at the same time to induce insulin resistance. So the problem with growth hormone was now your body's, your fasting insulin levels, your fasting blood glucose, all those things start going up. And people were like, well, my insulin sensitivity is good. Look how lean I am. Nah, it may, may or may not be. Um, it's very misleading. It's such a powerful fat burner. People stay leaner, but they don't realize they're actually getting very insulin resistant. So now you have people, I know several pros that are diabetics. And so then that's where some of the insulin can come in. It can kind of give your pancreas a break and kind of help normalize your, your blood sugar. So that's why they throw the insulin on top of mm. it? Well, from a health perspective, okay. that's why I would. They, they throw the insulin is also a very powerful transporter. So... Because um, I feel like, in the, was it the insulin and growth hormone that took the bodybuilders, like the Dorian area was when bodybuilders looked like they took like a, yeah. they like jumped another category in terms of size. I think so. I okay. think so. Like when I talked to a lot of the older bodybuilders, they couldn't even conceive of using insulin. They're like, man, that's, and I talked to several of them, right? Um, but yeah, that era when Dorian came along was, uh, and I remember experimenting with it for the first time. I remember thinking, this is crazy. Like, this is nuts, but I like to experiment. So I've experimented with about everything. Mm. Um, but, you know, so I researched insulin. Is there a way to safely do this? You know, the, the side effect of improper insulin use is death. That's a hell of a side effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. So it's yeah. easily the um, most dangerous, one of the most dangerous drugs bodybuilding. I would use. put it second behind diuretics. Right. Mm. So, um, so I researched insulin and are there ways to use it? And I came up with an approach that I felt was pretty safe, pretty relatively safe. And it was uh, it was used pre-workout, um, and you use it pre-workout. You put a lot of bot nutrients in your body 
while you train and pre-workout and it shuttles those nutrients and it does it very effectively, very effectively. And you've probably locked, you've probably read a lot of people who don't believe in nutrient timing, but this is a whole nother ball game of nutrient timing. This is very effective. You know, Milos has a similar approaches. His is a little more hardcore than mine, but, um, you know, so I started doing things like playing around with Humalog, something that would be in and out of your body because I still don't think having, High insulin levels throughout the day is a good thing. I still think at the end of the day, if you look at all the degenerative diseases that are out there, insulin resistance and high fasting insulin levels are kind of at the root of all of those. Mm. But I thought, hey, Humalog, this stuff's in and out pretty quickly. So you can put it in before you train, shuttle all those nutrients, and then pretty soon after that, it's out of your body. You're cool, right? I had tremendous success with that, with people. Um, you know, so and I always thought that that time around training was kind of a special time. There's a lot of cool things happening. And I didn't necessarily understand them all, but I could tell that structuring your nutrition and chemicals around training, there was something to that, mm. that it, it would kind of turbocharge everything you did. So, um, and insulin was tremendous for recovery too, and, and growth hormone, but you know, insulin, uh, is very, uh, it protects against muscle protein breakdown. And when you're talking about gaining muscle, you have to be, uh, you know, in this net protein balance has to be positive. You have to have more synthesis than breakdown. And if you can limit breakdown, it puts you in a much easier position to recover. Uh, so it manages cortisol, insulin manages cortisol, which has a direct translation of, to managing muscle protein breakdown. So that whole equation for gaining muscle becomes easier. Since you're not as broken down, we'll call it, you notice recovery is totally different. Um, you, know, you know, sometimes people train, you might need three or four days, five days, six days even before you can train again. You know, with a, with a, right, with a, with a protocol that emphasizes nutrition on training, people don't get sore. This is one of the things I've worked really hard on in the last seven, eight years is getting people to understand that you don't even technically even have to get sore to grow fast. And uh, so those things all kind of, can contribute to bigger the bigger bodies you see on stage now uh you know and certain there's different levels of this some people you know i always like five to eight i use of human before you train some guys do 20 before 20 after 20 before they go to bed you know so there's different levels of this how hard you go how hard how much risk are you willing to tolerate you know, what is what do you want to do but um you know those things definitely took bodybuilding to another level I still think at the end of the day, the good old anabolics, I tell people, like, if you can't grow off a little GH and testosterone, forget it. Like, those are very powerful hormones, man. Yeah. And I see these guys like, wow, I'm taking DECA, EQ, trend, Mastron, and test in off season. I'm just like, what are you going to do pre-contest? There's you, don't, you didn't leave yourself anywhere to go. You just played all your cards. So, you know, my approach with people was always in the off season, you know, some GH, some tests. It's really all you need. And then that, that cool stuff, the master on, you know, that, that kind of fun stuff, save that for pre-contest, man. And it can change the cosmetic look of the muscle. Mm. And that's when you get this. People always ask me, how do you have such a dense look to your muscle? And I think part of that's training for sure. But also, I always thought when I use the wind straw, when I use the master on, I want to get the maximum effect from it. So if I lay off of it and save it for when I really need it, I'll get that nice cosmetic look to my mm. muscle. Whereas the other guys are trying to look like that year round, right? So then it comes contest time and there's really no added benefit to it. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because this is something that we speculate on this show a lot because there's just not a lot of science to prove this theory that we have. I think a lot of that dense muscle look or that granite look comes from a, the, the way you train and you kind of glazed over it. Uh, 
you know, I, I noticed that when I began really strength training, a lot of five by five type of training, heavy lifting, deadlifting, squatting really heavy, it began to to change the look of my body. Before that, I was, you know, I chased the hypertrophy thing all the time and I had this kind of bubbly muscle look and I felt that when I was all aired up in the gym, I looked great. But as soon as I walked out, <laughs> I would deflate and then I looked like half the person I was before. And it wasn't until I really started to run a strength protocol and did I notice that I, I put on this this dense this dense muscle. Now, maybe when I was training in that that five by five type of uh, protocol, I didn't get as aired up inside the gym, but I seemed to look harder and had like looked like I had more muscle throughout the day, no matter what. What do you think about that? Well, I agree a thousand percent. I, I trained at Westside Barbell in the mid nineties too. So I was training with Louis Simmons and the best powerlifters in the world, doing Chuck Vogelpool. Chuck Vogelpool to this day is still the, uh, probably the hardest. I've never seen anybody train as hard as him ever, ever in my life. And so I was surrounded by powerlifters and, you know, we were doing a lot of very heavy stuff and I enjoyed that. I thought it was great. You know, I, I got my squad up to 785 when I was 22, 23 years old. Um, you know, and I didn't have the kind of equipment that they have today. And uh, I loved it, man. Um, but I always, that foundation was always there for me too. And, you know, like my favorite exercises were always incline bench presses and squats. And I love deadlifts. I actually like rack deadlifts. Damn, we're like, those are my three right there. You Incl- know? Incline press, oh. deadlift. Those, those, those movements changed my body more than anything exactly, else. Exactly, man. They're phenomenal exercises. And I know the cool thing now is to say you got to find exercises that fit your body, but I think people are too quick to dismiss those, right? The good stuff. You know, I think they work very well. You know, I was when I was at Westside. Uh, Mike Francois was the other bodybuilder was there. We were the only two bodybuilders ever that were really there. Oh, Mike Francois, and, uh, I was a big fan of him back in the day. Yeah, he was Mike, a big deadlifter. Mike was a phenomenal deadlifter. He um, he would change his pin height every week. One week he would pull from us, and sometimes he would even do it during a workout. Mm. Pull from a certain height, change the height of the, the pins, keep deadlifting, and he was strong. He had those crazy erector spinae his, muscles up oh, the middle his of his back. His erector spinae were insane. And Mike, when he turned pro, was actually it was before he turned pro. Mike was known for having kind of a long torso with a shallow back, and boy, did he change that. He went to a phenomenal back. I went to the the uh, Arnold Classic that he won when he beat Flex Wheeler, and I was a big Flex Wheeler fan. And I'll be honest with you, I had a little bit of jealousy with Mike. We're from the same town, and he was, you know, he could obviously clobber me. So I was a little bit jealous of him, mm-hmm. so I wasn't necessarily a big fan of his. I was a huge fan of Flex Wheeler, though. Well, those two came out. It was clearly between those two, and Mike destroyed him in every pose. And I'm sitting there like, oh, that's okay. Flex will get him in this pose. So, okay, Flex will get him from the back. They turn around, no. <laughs> no, Mike lit him up. And I got to know Mike. And Mike is one of the most humble, phenomenal guys. You guys probably know about his background. He's from Iowa. He actually played football for Iowa State, I think it was. Um, Mike was in the seminary to become a priest until he met Shannon. I got to be friends with Mike. And Mike was a phenomenal guy, man. Like He's one of the best guys I've literally ever met in the industry. He still has a training business there in Columbus. But... um. Mike took his body and through the power movements, the five by five type of stuff, Mike just transformed his body. And it was very impressive. And that stuff always worked very well for me too. I thought it was excellent. I still incorporate, I gotta be a little more careful now because like, you know, now if I get out of my, if, if my execution of the exercise even messes up a little, I can get hurt. Right. I'm a little more fragile now. 
Um, you it's know, definitely a higher risk reward. There. It's definitely a higher risk. And yeah. as you get older, you got to be wary of that. Like, right. I can't put a heavy barbell on my back and squat now, but you know what I can do? I can squat with a spider bar, which is a safety squat bar that's got a camber on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do things like that. So yeah, I just, I try to find ways that are a little more intelligent at my age and, and to, but to still keep that stuff in there. I was, you know, yesterday I'm shooting with, uh, one of the young guys that we have that are, that's working with us now. And he's, you know, 21, 22 years old, just smart as a whip. I mean, kid's got 30 national certifications and he's got a CSES and a, a kinesiology degree. And But not a lot of experience under the iron just because he's young and probably not trained a lot of people. And he's debating me about deadlifting. I saw this, man. I was cracking up. He's debating yeah. me about deadlifting being the best movement for your back. And I'm telling him it's, you know, hands down the single best exercise that somebody can incorporate into their their lifts is the de- the conventional deadlift like that. Nothing's going to grow your back more, more than that. And he was just going back and forth with me. And I feel like this is kind of a new message. And I, and I was teasing him that cause I, I, you know, Ben Pakulski, MI 40 gym, the, you know, hypertrophy coach, these guys talk a lot about, you know, isolation training a lot. And I, and there's a lot of value to that. And I, and they reference that as, you know, nothing activates the lats more than this. And so there's this culture now that's kind of grown around those theories and I feel like this younger generation tends to because uh, I was and the reason why I think I felt so passionate about it and was arguing with them is because I was that guy too I fell in that camp of doing the lat pull down and all these these isolation movements and I really neglected those core movements and it wasn't until later in my career did I revisit the incline bench the deadlift the squat and really start to make that staple movements and I just fucking blew up. And so that was the start of it. And I know that's just my experience, but then I started to apply that into my programming to all my clients and saw the same thing too. So what do you think about that? Do you, do you notice that there's kind of this culture around the, the isolation stuff and finding cool movements to target areas? Yeah. I mean, so a couple things, I want to talk about the deadlifts first. Yeah. If you do a rack pull and you can't feel it in your lats, you don't, you're not doing it right. You know, I understand what they're saying about shortening a muscle and all that. That's cool. But if you do a rack pull, let's say from mid shin, you should lock your lats in and you should be generating the tension through your lats. You shouldn't be driving your feet through the floor like you're a pilot or trying to get the bar from point A to point B. You can take those basic movements and you can generate a hell of a lot of tension from them. And the other thing I would say is once you've got that muscle locked in, like let's say on a rack pull with your lats you know, and you're pulling with them. When you're lifting at a higher percentage of your one rep max, you by default get more activation. I mean, the heavier weight. That when was you, my argument. It was like, when you compare deadlifting 600 pounds to a guy seated row for 200 something pounds, it's just bottom line, you're going to get so much more carryover there. You get a lot of carryover. And you know, Fred Hatfield was, um, was a real, he was a brilliant guy, scientist, Dr. Squat. And he used to talk about this optimum, percent of your one rep max. And he used to talk about this at 70, he, for him, like this perfect was set was 78% of your one rep max. But he also talked about where you get the most muscle activation. And he was saying, well, if you get up to around 85 to 90% of your one rep max, you will get, you'll activate every high, high threshold motor and you get everything activated. So if you can learn how to use the right muscle with the movement, and then you put the weight on top of it, I can do a 30 pound dumbbell row and make it squeeze and burn. But I'm telling you, my lats will not grow from that. I don't care how good it feels and how isolated my lat feels. There's a there's a minimum level of compression that you need in the muscle with a heavy weight. And some exercises just don't lend themselves to that. 
And when you can really, like I always felt like a, a slide inclined barbell press, I just felt was phenomenal for my upper pecs and my shoulders. And, you know, and you think of that as a compound movement, and it is, but it's putting a lot of stress right where you want it. And I would tell you that as much as I love a fly, I really, in my heart, believe that an incline barbell press on a slight incline will probably build my pecs more than a dumbbell fly would. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. I could I, be wrong. I learned that lesson as a kid doing, trying to get my arms to grow, trying to get my arms to grow, trying to get my arms to grow. Finally, some guys talked to me in the gym, big dudes, and they were talking to me about doing weighted pull-ups. And I started doing weighted pull-ups for my back. And the side effect of that was my arms grew. Yeah, you got bigger. And yeah. I started, oh, shit, why are my biceps growing? Oh, it's because I'm doing these these heavy weighted pull-ups. Yeah. But a lot, and I do think that a lot of this gets, gets mixed up when we – because a lot of people get away with doing some of the isolated movements because they've got really, really good genetics or maybe they're on a lot of gear. But especially when you're a natural lifter and if you're the average kid – and you want to put on muscle, like you got to get strong. Squat, deadlift, bench, overhead press, barbell row, like the basic movements. You can't, you can't isolate your way to get that the kind of muscle that you want, especially if you're just regular genetics, average Joe, all natural. Hundred percent. Got to do those heavy, you know, those those heavy kinds of lifts. Hundred percent. No yeah. way around it. In my opinion, no way around it unless you're a genetic freak. Absolutely. Let's talk about your your mountain dog diet. You had glazed over that a little bit, and uh, I read a little bit about it and your emphasis on certain types of fats and whatnot. Can we can we get into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I am. Um, <clears throat> and now, is this an official diet that you put out, or not really? Okay, it's just kind of philosophies, you know. But it's just a, uh, you know, it's it's just a way of we always had this. Uh, the way we looked at dieting was always. You are what you you are what you eat, and I and I just kind of took it to the next step, which was you are what you you are what you eat has eaten, and you know if you look at I'll, you know if you look at just like like beef for example, you know the natural diet of cows for example, uh, grass you know you get all kinds of good stuff from grass, multiple digestive chambers they have they they have a real good ability to convert that stuff into good stuff for them as opposed to eating a bunch of corn that produces all kinds of problems and then they got the, the, the issues have to be corrected with antibiotics and all this stuff you know and all those antibiotics and that stuff gets trapped in fat cells and it gets in the fat of the animal then we eat it and it actually gets in our fat cells um, but I wanted to experiment with eating kind of a more we'll call it a, I guess natural diet you know then you look at salmon you know the salmon uh, that, that's farmed it's like this weird grayish collar and they actually have this thing called a samo wheel where they pick a collar to inject the, the, the dye with to make it look good you, know, you get like farm raised tilapia that sits out there and, and this is um, maybe things are a little different now maybe there's some advancements where this isn't happening as bad but when I was really digging into this stuff it was like eh, man I don't know if I want to eat farm raised tilapia anymore they're sitting around they're feeding them you know, these pellets that are kind of nasty or whatever. But so I, I just tried to, in the, the scope of this diet or way of eating, I'll call it, I just tried to think about the, you know, the source of the food and where it came from and what it had been through. And um, in eggs, uh, and, you know, for example, one thing I did notice before anyone ever told me this was I, I noticed that when I got eggs from, uh, my farmer friend, the yolks were always super orange, particularly in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are the yolks I get from the grocery store so pale and they literally just disintegrate when they hit the skillet? 
Whereas the, the eggs I get from my farmer are super orange and they're real firm. You know, so then I started learning about the beta carotenes and the different quality of eggs that are apparent when a chicken has the ability to roam free and peck and eat insects and things like that, particularly in the summer. Um, so I was like, man, that, this egg seems like it would be better for you than this other egg. And so it was just little things like that. And um, all those together um, kind of just made the eating style what it was. So I would get grass-fed beef. I would eat salmon a couple times a week, wild salmon. It's pretty expensive, but I would just, I'd still try to get it a couple times a week. The eggs I ate, I always tried to make sure they were from a farmer. At a minimum, if they weren't, at least try to get them omega-3 enhanced. Um, yeah, we, we talk about food quality all the time on our show, but I think sometimes we have a, we have an audience, a very strong uh, audience of, you know, bodybuilder types who they don't care about the health stuff. They really don't. They just want to build muscle, burn body fat. I don't give a shit. I think that's why sometimes this message is lost on them and why you get the wellness side of fitness. will listen to this, but the muscle building fat loss side, they don't give a shit. They're like, I, if it doesn't make me more buff, doesn't make, yeah. so, I, so I'm going to ask you, you're, you're a bodybuilder. You, you, you work with other people interested. Do they see differences in performance? And cause my argument's always been, if you're healthier, you're going to build more muscle and you're going to burn more body fat easier. Do the people you work with notice a difference when they change the food quality? I know you said you did with your plant, your blood panels. Are you getting any feedback from people you're working with on that as well? I think so. I think they do better. And it's pretty wild when you, you know, I work with some of these pros and they're like, they see the, the I lay out a diet for them and they're like, John, this is 300 calories less than what I'm used to eating, but now I'm growing again. And I, I think it has to have something to do with the food quality, their ability to use the nutrients better. And, and there is more nutrients, you know, more fat-soluble vitamins. Maybe there's more vitamin E. Maybe there's, you know, there, there is a difference in nutrients as well. But digestion, utilization, all that stuff, you can, you know, to your point earlier in the show, you can do more with less. And that translates into other things too. You know, I think that they feel better. They can use a little less chemicals. They get away with less chemicals and they feel better. I've worked with a number of pros. There's one guy who's super popular now that um, I started working with him when he was an amateur. And all I did was change his food sources and cut his drug stack in half from his previous coach. He blew up. He won his pro card. Now he's wow. Um, now he's a very successful pro. Is this a trend right now? Because the trend in bodybuilding for so long has been more is better, more is better, more is better. And you're like the third person now I've talked to who's who said – no, let's cut the drugs and let's improve food quality. Is there is there is there trend starting to reverse? I think it is to a degree, but you also have the other side where there's people that are trying to get attention. So they say, all oh, these guys take 10 grams of this. They all take side enhancement oil. So they're kind of trying to appeal to the shock factor. And then you have all these other kids coming into the sport. They're like, yeah, he tells the truth. I'm like, actually, he doesn't know what pros are doing. He just, <laughs> he's just saying this so you guys will follow him. And so the, you got, so there's this battle, like I'm, you're trying to convince people that they don't have to do all this nonsense. Uh, and then you have these other, you know, people coming out of the woodwork saying, all these guys do all of this stuff. And it's like, well, there are people who do make no mistake about it. But to say all pro bodybuilders take SEO is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Like, and, and that's like, site enhancement oil. Right. If you can explain that a little bit for the audience who might not be familiar with what that is. Well, you know, so you don't have to, you can inject an oil into your body and it swells the muscle up. And so you don't, it doesn't take any hard work. It started, um, you know, there used to be 
uh, it was technically a steroid. It was called a sickling. It was made in, I think it was Italy. And this is what the guys took in the 80s and 90s and Lavroni and all these guys and Flex Wheeler. But it, it was, um, was an inflammatory agent. And I used it. I actually used it at the 99 USA in my calves and biceps. And you take it the last week before a show. It just swells them up. It would swell it up, you know, half inch, three quarters of an inch. But it didn't change the appearance of the muscle in terms of you could still see the quality. You could still still see the muscle separation, the detail, the striations and all that. So it looked good. And then there was a guy in the 90s named Chris Clark who was in Germany who made this oil that had different kinds of silicone in it, silica in it. Is this synthol? Yeah, synthol, right. Okay. So Pump you, and pose you, or whatever. Right. So you remember a guy named Manfred Hobel? I do. I remember with the gigantic I, I, arms. I bought the magazines and it, the biggest arms in the world. I had no idea that he had him. it. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to follow this guy's arm routine. <laughs> Not him. knowing that it was just oil bags. It was oil bags. <laughs> it was straight oil bags. Manfred and there was a guy named Ernie Taylor. Ernie to this day denies ever using it, but he was, he was friends with Chris Clark. So Chris Clark, this guy literally lived in a basement and he made this stuff. And I tried it too. I was like, sweet, I'm going to have some awesome arms. So I tried it and I put in my triceps and my triceps, like in a shirt, looked awesome. Like, look how big and round his muscle is. But when you took your shirt off, you didn't see the detail. And I love the detail look to the muscle. I lost the striations, the detail. And to this day, my right tricep still doesn't look right from when I took it. Uh, still, my left tricep looks great. My right tricep looks like crap. And it was, I swear, it was, I still think that was from the one time I took it. And then I got tired of that. So I took it for maybe six months and never took it again. That stuff now, there's different perme permeations of it. There's there permutations. There's different versions of it. And they put different, I don't, I don't really keep up with it. The, um, the one that's probably the most popular now is called Nolotil. It's a, they use it in surgeries to inflame tissue, so it's easier to do surgery. Um, that one isn't, I mean, it's, um, it doesn't blur the muscle as bad, but it also doesn't create the swelling either. It's kind of like somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. I've tried that. Uh, it was okay. A lot of pros do use Nolotil, especially the guys on the West Coast. There's a trainer out there that loves putting, putting it all over people's back before they compete and things like that. Um, it's okay, but the, the synthol and that stuff that just gives you this lumpy, weird appearance. Um, yeah, because you could Google, you could look up, you know, pictures of dudes, especially in Brazil, injecting their bodies full of this stuff, and they look like a bunch of bees stung them or something. It doesn't yeah. look natural yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, it's weird, you know, and, and in the bodybuilding community, you get these guys that say, well, they just don't know how to use it right. I'm like, eh. I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, you know, you got to go underneath the bicep. Yeah, straighten the arm, go underneath it. I'm like, you can do that all you want. But when you lose a detail of the muscle, I just don't think it's a good look. I no. just and, – and listen, I, a lot of people say it's just a tool, one of many tools. But the other tool is you still have to work. You're still building you muscle. You still have to work and build muscle. Yeah, you might as well so, do implants all over your body. So, you, so to me, it like takes the, the hard work and effort that I like to put into the sport because that's what I love about it. It takes that element out of it. Now you just blow up the muscle with some silica, some oil – it just takes it the love. I mean, for me, I hate it. I can't stand it. it takes away the. And I love to experiment. I mean, mm. I've wasn't there a bodybuilder that that had like a a heart issue as a result because some of the oil got into his. Uh, well, Milos almost died. Was it Milos? Yeah, Milos almost died from doing that. And when you talk to Milos, Milos is a good friend of mine. He'll tell you like if there's one thing I could change, it would have been I wouldn't have used that stuff. Like, he'll wow. tell you that. Wow. I remember watching, uh, I was a huge fan of bodybuilding in the nineties and there was a change in Flex Wheeler's physique Calves and towards the end. Yeah. 
and his body just looked different. I, I still think his best physique was when he won the Arnold Classic in 93. 93 was the no best No question ever. about it. And then all of a sudden, he just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily, you know, better. Um, and bodybuilding has always been, and it continues to be kind of this cult type of sport. And to outsiders listening, it just sounds like a bunch of science experiments, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to admit, <laughs> right? Because you talk about, you know, insulin and growth hormone and testosterone and it's like you're you're, yeah, it's you're a giant lab experiment. Yeah, you're just you're injecting yourself throughout the whole day. I mean, I know, but I know there's a lot more to it, right? There's a lot of training. There's a lot of diet uh, that goes into it. Um, I don't know. I mean, has that from 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 the inside? It doesn't sound as crazy. But no, you are a thousand percent right. I mean, there's there's drugs in every sport, um, track and field, uh, golf. Uh, I remember when my doctor, when Roger Clemens, uh, I'm, I'm a baseball fan too, and when Roger Clemens all of a sudden got good again, my doctor, my, my doctor, Weird, yeah. my, my doctor was like growth hormone. I was like, no, pitchers don't take. It. Why would a pitcher do that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, but bodybuilding is a whole other level of drugs. You know, mm-hmm. even pre-contest. You know, we. Uh, I mean, just the things that you'll do pre-contest. I mean, is crazy. Is there um, like a carryover? So from another sport, and we didn't really cover EPO yet, but like like an endurance sport, you see something that they're using that, you know, Ooh, I wonder if that would translate well, you know, in my process for this, or is there like a thought process there? Absolutely. And I try, and I love to experiment, man, particularly when I was younger, I was like, I wonder if this will work. So with EPO, I experimented with EPO for a few years. Um, and the reason why I did was, okay, so it, 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 the reason why people use it's the oxygen part, right? So like Lance Armstrong, you can go forever. You don't get tired. Well, that's partly because your red blood cell, red blood cell count increases and things like that. Well, you already get that from the steroids. Like most of like the Anadrol and Deca, they're, they were originally created to treat various forms of anemia, things mm-hmm. like that. But um, I wanted to try EPO because of the endurance part, because when I was trying to get lean, I was generally doing very low carb diets and my energy levels would be very poor. So you get to the gym and the last thing you want at the gym when you're trying to get ready for a show is to have a a bad workout, like that sucks. So I thought, well, let me try EPO to see how my endurance is. I'm gonna be honest with you, it was incredible. So I could do like, I was, this was when I was still strong and I would squat 500, I'd do a clean 10 reps. I'd be totally out of breath as you would expect. 30, 45 seconds later, I was ready to do it again. Wow. Like the recovery wow. was insane. And wow. this was on 50 grams of carbs a day. So it allowed me to train at a crazy high level on very low carbs that I otherwise couldn't have recovered from. Um, when your calories are low and your carbs are low, you just don't quite have the same energy. And that stuff um, helped. Now, eventually I got to the point where I was like, okay, that's nice, but is it really changing the way your body looks? Eh, maybe 1% or 2%. So I just thought it's probably not worth the risk versus reward. It also um, thickens the blood. So thickens the be, blood. You got to so stay very hydrated. And then, you know, if you're, what do people, what do bodybuilders do pre-contest the last day? That's right. They dehydrate, right? So if you've not got- Not a good combination. It's not a good combination. So if you've got high hematocrit, high, high red blood cell count, and now you get your blood nice and thick, man, you're kind of asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to the guys on the, the Tour de France that have died. Their blood got so thick, they got dehydrated. Boom, done. Mm. What are the big differences between training people who are natural versus training people who are on gear? Do you, you you try to train them differently, or is it just more volume, more frequency, but the same same stuff? 
Well, it's not even so much a question of natural versus enhanced. It's a question of recovery. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who are natural who didn't recover well. I've worked with people who are natural who actually recovered awesome. Like you would think they were taking stuff, but they weren't. Mm. Same thing applies to, to the geared up people. The people on gear, some of them all of a sudden can uh, can recover very quickly. And then some can't. You know, I was one of those guys that it took me a week before I could do my legs again. My recovery was pretty bad. So you have to look at it from a non, you don't even consider drugs in the mix. You just, first of all, how does the person recover? Because that's going to dictate how they train. You you want them to be able to stimulate the muscle every three, four, five days. Um, and that's going to dictate their frequency. So if somebody can't recover and I put them on a high frequency program, what's going to happen? Nothing good, mm-hmm. right? Or what if I take somebody who recovers really, really well and I only have them train their muscle group once a week? That's probably not optimal either. That has nothing to do with gear or no gear. It's just the recovery. Now, the reality is, is the gear will help that. Right. Right. So it's going to help them. It'll help them recover. So if somebody normally took five days of training muscle again, now they might be able to do it in three days. Mm-hmm. So I try to look at it from that perspective. Certainly when you have people that are using gear, their protein synthesis is ramped through the roof. So they can typically do more for them what they would be able to do. You know, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, some guys that are just taking tons of stuff and you can't tell they lift. Well, you know, for those guys that didn't, you can't all of a sudden just assume since they're taking a bunch of stuff, you can hammer them with, with volume. That's true. Right? So I look at the number one thing is I look at how are they recovering? Okay. If they're not recovering well, why is it? Is it their nutrition? Is it their nutrient timing? Is it their lack of sleep? Is it a stressful lifestyle? You know, is the, does, the dude, does the dude have four girlfriends and he's stressed out from trying to keep them all happy? Who knows what the stress is? But those are the things I look at, um, you know, when you're trying to determine volume and frequency. And, and back to our earlier conversation, just because a certain amount of volume and frequency works at one point, eventually your body will adapt to it. So then what do you do? Do you give them more frequency or do you pull back? Do you pull their volume down? You know, what do you do? What are the changes that you make? And see, this is what in, in the, the coaching part of this, this is the what makes a good coach a great coach. It's looking at what's working, and then when it doesn't work anymore, then what do you do? And that applies not only to training, it's your diet too. What do you do? You know, do you just keep pushing calories down? Well, how low is too low? What happens when someone's down? What happens when you have a lady down to 700, 800 calories? Then what do you do? What happens when you have a guy down? You know, then what do you do? So you still, then you still have to look at uh, eventually their body's going to adapt. If it never adapted, then we could all just do the same thing over and over forever and it would work. And this is what I see with a lot of the younger coaches now in our sport. They say, just do the same stuff oh, God. over and over. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree that it's going to work for a while, but at some point you're not going to be able to increase your bench press 10 pounds every week. Mm-hmm. At some point you're going to have to do something else. You got to learn how to think. And so that's what, you know, when, when you ask your question about, Natural versus non-natural. I, I tend to look at that more of recovery, you yeah. know, and start there. I, I see this a lot in coaching people too. Um, real common, I get somebody who wants to either do like a bikini competition or get into men's physique, and the then they want to already pick a show. And, and the first thing that I always want them to do is to assess their eating and, and training and then kind of show me where they're at right now so I have an idea of their baseline. And probably the most common thing I see, and it always – I know it's it's always tough for them to hear, and a lot of times many of them don't listen to me and they go off and go hire someone else or do something, is 
I don't think they have built their metabolism up to in a healthy place to even go into a prep. You know, you get a girl who is only eating fifteen to eighteen hundred calories, and she comes up to you and she's like, "Hey, I want to get ready for a bikini show." And I already I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, "Well, <laughs> if I got to cut you for the next, you know, eight to twelve weeks, uh, you know, where am I going to be able to go on weeks four, five, and six? Like, right. I just, right. I, I know I'm going to be, I know I'm going to do damage to your metabolism just to try and get there. And it's, I know it's not smart, and you're probably not going to get the results that you really, really want, or potentially could if we did this right. Do you see that a lot? I see it a lot. I, I dealt with. Oh a man, lot. that's been going on for so long. It, it, there's a there's a gym in Columbus that has produced probably more bikini and figure pros than any play gym in the country, and most of them don't compete anymore. You know, and they compete year round. They re- depress their metabolism, low calorie dieting. When you do low calories for a long period of time, the longer that goes, the longer it takes your metabolism to return to normal. So what happens is you get people to compete in the spring shows. Then they're like, well, somebody talked me into doing the summer shows. Then it's, well, I'll do the fall shows too. It turns into year round. So they never really give their metabolic rate a chance to normalize. And then what do they do? They cut more and then they all of a sudden are starving and they eat a lot. And then what happens? They blow up. The rebound is crazy. They rebound, then they get depressed, and then they quit. So I've seen that for years, uh, years. This isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on for years. And this is, it doesn't happen as much to men, but there's something about a female's metabolism that when you suppress it for so long, show after show after show after show, um, that, you know, they eventually will snap, as anybody would. As anybody would. And then when they gain a bunch of weight, they get depressed and they quit. You know, guys don't tend to compete year round as much. Um, so it's, but women, they like to look good all the time. You know, there's this pressure on them to look great all the time. And um, I think that's, I think that's the problem is that, yep. and that's been that way for our culture forever. I know, I mean, we've, we've put women on covers of magazines and they're normally these, skinny borderline you know bulimic looking women that you know we've this image of what a woman should look like this really skinny petite look and it's usually photoshopped right right exactly and you know eating salads all the time and like snacking on vegetables all day long to keep this tiny petite figure so i think that's been a part of our culture for such a long time and then now we have this explosion of the the bikini you know competition Mm -hmm. now every girl sees that and goes like i want to do that and this now we have this huge uh you know influx of Instagram models now that have came out that didn't exist 15, mm-hmm. 20 years. So now we have all these people that this younger generation is looking at and aspiring to look like, and they just don't have the tools yet because they haven't put their metabolism in a healthy, safe place. And then they're going out and they're getting in these shows. I think we're, I think we have no idea what we have coming. I think the way the sport is growing, it's growing so fast and so many people are coming in. Plus that, with social media, just y- yeah. making it so popular with the average person. You know, studies, some studies will show that, uh, and th- these are new, will show that if you calorie restrict for a long period of time and then you you eat a lot of calories all at once, like, like a lot of competitors do post-show, that they'll actually increase the number, number of, of fat, fat cells. cells. Right. And what's funny is, again, being a kid who followed bodybuilding, when you see bodybuilders compete over and over and over and over again, especially when they don't give their body a break, they start to lose that sharpness. Their bodies start to- It's tired looking. Stop responding. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because they're adding fat cells because they'll go, they'll compete and then they'll, they'll, they'll binge and then compete and binge over and over and over again. It's like they can't, 
versus the bodybuilders who would they'd gain weight but they'd kind of stay healthy at the same time i think that's that might be what's happening the other thing i wanted to ask you too john was uh you know we talk about all the variables that you can manipulate you know with your for your body that prevent this adaptation where your body just stops responding and i feel like in modern you know more recently training has been something that people have stopped really paying attention to where you look at the workouts and everybody's workouts look the same and they manipulate their diet and their drugs but nobody's really paying attention to the workouts whereas i remember reading the bodybuilding magazines in the 80s and the early 90s and they were talking about which routine is the best and which one works better and i'm going to do a double split routine and i'm going to train super high intensity and i'm going to do you know train my whole body three days a week or whatever you don't see that as much anymore is that is that is that am i accurate with that well you are the cool thing is is now you got guys like uh, Brad Schoenfeld that are actually trying to do some meaningful research on volume and adaptations and things like that. But to your point, you're right. And the, my biggest frustration, like if you sit down and talk to me, you'll very quickly figure out the training part is what I'm most passionate about. The frustrating thing for me is, is that in bodybuilding, people take a lot of chemicals. So whatever they're doing works. Right. So they think, okay, what I do works. If you took that and you applied it to a natural athlete, it might not work. It might not be the best approach. Or just because the approach that you're doing works, um, it doesn't mean it couldn't be a lot better. So there is very little paid, very, very little attention paid to the training aspect. And, you know, I started working with guys like Fuad, you know, when Fuad Abiyad, I, I started working with him. He'd never won a pro show. He's in his 30s, and then all of a sudden he wins. I started working with Doug Dale. He had muscle tears from doing the extreme hit training. He was going to retire. I said, give my training a chance, man. He ended up winning three, four, five shows. You know, I've taken a lot of guys who were kind of toward the end of their career and changed their training, and they their bodies did well, and they, and they competed and done well. And I think that was because I looked at training a little differently, and I tried to understand what was going on as opposed to the large majority who just do anything, just – go at it and just take a lot of drugs but there is a way to do it and have some longevity and to do well there's i looked at training you know you had these camps you you, you still do to a degree you still had kind of the arthur jones the old school hit training Mike Spencer, yeah. and you had kind of more of the voluminous arnold training you know and i feel like there's different adaptations that take place from different kinds of training and i always thought well, as opposed to being in one camp, what is the advantage? What is it that is so good about HIT training? And what is it that's so good? And what if I could build a program that would incorporate that? Yep, absolutely. What if I could get the advantages of both of those? And oh, by the way, what if I could exercise, sequence exercises so that I didn't get injured, so that I had some longevity? Maybe it's not the smartest thing in the world to go in and bench heavy first every week for my chest. You know, so I try to look at training. I try to understand what how, what what the mechanisms were that were creating hypertrophy. How could I wrap those all into a program, and then how could I uh, sequence exercise so that I stayed healthy? And the exercise sequencing gets no attention, never has, probably never will. Mm -hmm. But I would tell you, you guys know this intuitively. Would you ever have someone walk into a gym and start doing heavy lunges or hack squats first? <laughs> you probably wouldn't, right? Because you know that's not the right spot in a workout to do that. So intuitively, you know that there's a sequence that's going to – so I, I'm like obsessed by these sequences. What if I do this exercise after this exercise? And I think there's a way to layer your training so that you can enjoy longevity and you can train for a long time in addition to getting the hypertrophy benefits. 
Yeah, that's all. We talk about that all the time and just mm-hmm. exercise programming. I feel like it's a lost art. You know, I really do. I, I see a lot of these these bodybuilders routines and they all look the same. Chest, one day, back, one day, same kind of exercise, the same kind of nobody's really paying attention to all these other intricacies that I think, especially if you're natural, you really need to pay attention you to. You have to. It makes a much bigger difference. I mean, you know, I, I remember, God, this must have been now at least 12 or 13 years ago, I picked up a book called Dinosaur Dinosaur Training. And uh, it was very, very different style of workouts. It was, it was kind of around strongman and odd lift type stuff. But the way that the guy trained, he would train his whole body much more frequently than the typical once a week, you know, hit your body part once a week type of training. So then that opened my eyes and I started to read some of the old uh, bodybuilders routines like Steve Reeves and, you know, Grimmick and Reg Parr and all those guys way back in the day. And uh, I noticed that they hit their body parts a little bit more frequently um, than the, you know, what I was reading in the, in the current magazines. Started applying that to my body and I had never gotten so strong and, and built so much muscle. And I do, I do think it's a, it's a missed, uh, it's an, it's an art that is lacking nowadays is really focusing on exercise programming. And it's, ironically probably one of the most important parts of your yeah. of your program is how you do your workout yeah and like in to your your example with naturals you know protein synthesis isn't going to be jacked through the roof uh, like it would with an enhanced and it's not going to stay elevated it's forever. not going to stay elevated so you need to hit the body part more frequently now they may not have the best recovery capability so you can't take as many sets to failure maybe you can't do quite as much volume so absolutely those things should all be thought about mm, excellent what Looking at bodybuilding today, do you see any any trends right now that you think are going to start to happen, or do you see any like what do you see for the future of the sport? So I'm getting next week. I'm actually doing a video, and I'm going to call it something like "Has Social Media Killed Bodybuilding?" <laughs> so I'm going to give you my perspective on it. Um, first of all, what does it mean to say "killed bodybuilding" or made it worse? What does that even mean? Um, I look at bodybuilding from different levels. I look at it from someone who just goes into the gym because they love training, all the way up to people who compete in Mr. Olympia. Are the people in the Mr. Olympia, are their bodies getting bad? No, there's still some phenomenal physiques. They look incredible. What about at the national level? Well, at the national level, you don't have the depth that you used to have. It used to be the top 15. It was, a, it was very difficult to make the top 15. Now it's easy to make the top 15. What about the local level? The local level, the state titles used to be phenomenal. If you won the Mr. California, if you won the Mr. Florida, and the Mr. Ohio was super prestigious yeah, and super hard deal. to win. It was a huge deal. And actually, you would be more popular winning your state title yeah. than getting fourth or fifth in national. I remember that being a young kid, yeah, like right? meeting someone like that. Oh, it's Mr. California. Mr. California. Right? Yeah. And I was the same way at the Ohio. I remember going to the Ohio and I just wanted to be Mr. Ohio. Like that's all I cared about. Someday I'm going to be Mr. Ohio. The state titles now are not good. They're not good. There's, you know, you have shows and there's 20 bodybuilders total in the whole show. So at that level, it's depleting. Now, does that mean it's worse? Uh, from a competitive standpoint, yes. But so why is that? You know, so people will say, well, it's because of new classes. Now you have classic physique, you have the um, and the other classes. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe some guys, you know, don't like to train their legs, so they don't do the full. Maybe some guys just don't want to be a mass monster. So I don't necessarily think that that's good or bad. I just think people have different avenues to go through now. Then you have people at the gym you know, who may not compete, but they love to build their bodies. That to me is the essence of bodybuilding. 
And what's, what is happening on social media should not affect how I train when I go to the gym, right? If I look at it, something on social media, it should have zero impact on my ability to train and work my butt off when I go to the gym. So if bodybuilding to me has taken a downturn, it's not because of social media. It's not because of the new classes. It's because people are getting soft is what I think. I think also it's magnified with social media. It's just there's more eyes on it. You still have people that bust their butts and work hard. But then the people who are kind of just in there for whatever reasons they want to be popular, now we just happen to see it. And I think if you took social media out of the equation, I think a lot of these people probably wouldn't even train at all. I think they probably would quit because they're not truly passionate about it. But it all comes down to, you know, it's like in business as a business owner. It's all about ownership. And training is the same way, man. I can't sit here and complain about, well, this guy on YouTube, he's a retard. He doesn't know what he's done. Who cares, man? How does that affect me when I go to the gym? I want to go, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to work as hard as I can. So for me, social media has done nothing to ruin bodybuilding. It's, it's what's in your heart. It's what you put into it. You know, if, if social media is ruining bodybuilding for you, then you're probably in it for the wrong reason. You know, if it's, if it's getting ruined for you personally. And to me, all this stuff is very personal. So, you know, is a sport taking some downturns? Yeah, probably. I think the physiques of the 90s looked the best, but you also had some genetic freaks too. How many Flex Wheelers and Kevin Lebronis are there? Yeah. I mean, these guys are genetic freaks. You just don't see the, you know, you mean, you got a Rolly. Rolly's a freak, right? But um, so I don't know. I think there's probably some bad stuff that's happened, but there's also a lot of good things. You've got a lot of information out there. Look at the information you guys are putting out there. You know, was that kind of information out there 20 years ago? No. Absolutely not. It was very hard to find. Very really, hard really, to find. Really good, honest uh, fitness information. Most of it was put out by supplement companies to buy to get you to buy more bars or, or protein powders right. or whatever. Um, I think social media is giving a lot of people who train different routes and avenues to make a living. In the past, you'd have to compete really to get that, that notoriety. Nowadays, if you <laughs> look good and you post good pictures on Instagram and you're pretty fit... You can get a huge following and, right. and now you can build your business. And, you know, Adam talks about all the time that the transition when he was competing, where he noticed that the longest lines were no longer for the Mr. You know, Olympia. They were for the, yeah, that's right. You know, the dude on, you know, Instagram has got the most true. followers, you know, so yeah. that's true. You know, I noticed that a while back too. And rather than like been with most of the guides in my generation, they just complain. <laughs> you know, I hear a lot of people banging on millennials, but I'm going to tell you, man, I bang on the guys in my generation guys are lazy these are the same guys in my generation nobody would work a job and bodybuild all that i grew up hearing which you can't have a job and be a successful bodybuilder which is stupid yes you can have a job i had man i worked in a corporate world i worked i worked hard jobs i did a lot of stuff you guys are just lazy and um you know so my attitude was a little different when i saw instagram and youtube i thought well, shit this is a great opportunity for me i can't compete forever i'm deep in my 40s now so maybe I can't win the Mr. Olympia, but maybe now there's an avenue that I can continue to build my business and notoriety. And about a year ago, I noticed something in my personal business that was very apparent. Like when I started traveling, it used to be when I went places, people would say, oh, John, hey, I hope you get your pro card, or I saw you at this show, or what show are you doing next? That went away. Every single thing I heard was, I love your YouTube, I love your videos. And it didn't matter where I was. You know, I was at a Tennessee Titans game Thursday night in Tennessee. We drove down. 
And three people in the stadium stopped me and they not one of them asked me if I was competing. They said, I love your YouTube, I watch your YouTube. And I see this over and over. So for me, it was like, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity for me. Absolutely. Whereas the guys in my generation usually say, oh, this is weak. You know, these guys suck. They don't know anything. I was like, no, man, I see this opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I work hard on my Instagram and my YouTube because it has value for me. You know, and it's also just a great platform to get your ideas out there. Thing, like you said, things like this show didn't exist. All I could do was get muscle and fitness and try to get the information I could out of there. There was no real seminars. A seminar would be uh, a guy pulling up, standing up, and there was a Q&A for about an hour. That was the equivalent of a seminar you used to be able to get, and those weren't good. You certainly didn't get any drug information, and you didn't even really get much information. I only went, the seminars that I went to when I was younger, I only remember one, and it was a Tom Platt's one. It's the only one I remember. He's talking about sarcoplasmic reticulum and all this stuff, and I was like, man, this guy's smart. He's the only seminar I remember ever. And I've seen a lot of guys give seminars, but they were just so weak. Mm -hmm. You need to eat chicken and rice. Like, okay, cool. I got that. <laughs> <laughs> I got that so, memo. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> I'm got cool that with that one. Man, you saw one of the greatest, some of the greatest runs on that game. That game was insane, man. Henry went went bananas with some of those. It was crazy. Like those stiff arms. <laughs> oh man, my god, was nasty. And uh, then he, yeah, and then he busted the 50 yard run on the other side. It was awesome. And you know, one of my friends, he plays for Tennessee. That's, he got us tickets, so we were down in the fifth row right there by oh the wow it was awesome oh what a game to be at it was man. very yeah cool. that's a good game to be at right there yeah, for it sure was, it was very cool man it was uh really really i love the fact that yeah i had no idea what direction we were going to go on this podcast um and we haven't done a really deep dive into anabolics it was really a treat to mm -hmm. to talk with someone who's so uh, open about it but before we go i i would like to hear if you were to with all of your knowledge with programming nutrition anabolics even if you were to go back and whisper into 22-year-old John's ear, what would be a few things you'd say about each one of those things? Oh, man. Um, well, I would never change anything because you guys know all the mistakes you make make you a better person and it gets you where you are today. But if you put a gun to my head and said, damn it, you're going to change something, you have to. You can't bail out and say you wouldn't change anything. I would probably say that the the nutrition part um, and getting more out of less and focusing more on efficiency and digestion actually is a pretty damn big deal. Mm. You know, I mean, as I've gotten older, and there's a lot of kids now that don't that don't understand it, but as they get older, they will understand. Right, it, right. Yeah. The other thing I would say is um, listen to your body, and what I mean by that is I've been very fortunate to have some pretty good longevity but I listen to my body. And if I'm doing an exercise and something doesn't feel right, I don't say I'm just gonna push through it. You know, when you talk to people who have major muscle injuries, they usually, not every time, but they usually will say something didn't feel right. I did a rep, it didn't feel right, I did another rep, boom, pop, tore, tear. And I'm one of those guys that I, man, trust me, I've had every kind of itis you can have. Um, and I have had a few muscle tears, but, I listen to my body and the reason why I would tell this to a young guy is because this, that stuff will accumulate. And if you don't listen, the injuries will mount up. You'll be getting soldier, shoulder surgeries. You might be getting hip replacements. Um, those things are going to mount up. And 
they don't have to. You, like get, when you train balls at a wall, you're going to have strains and you're going to have itises and you know medial lateral epicondylitis and stuff like that. That's going to happen. But nowhere should anyone believe that muscle tears are just part of the journey. No, they're not. They don't have to be part of the journey. So from a health perspective, from a longevity perspective, I mean, you got to listen to your body. If something doesn't feel right, do something else. You know, and then the other thing I would add on to that is I spend a lot of money trying to stay in one piece, as I call it. I, I've done ART, MAT, fascial stretch technique, the deep, deep, deep tissue massage. I've had the same girl working on me um, for 14 years doing my deep tissue massage. I've got another guy that's done a lot of ART on me, MAT. Right now, I'm really enjoying fascial stretch technique or therapy, whatever it's called. I don't know what it is, but it works awesome. So I also have invested and put a lot into staying healthy and trying to keep my body working right. And I'm very flexible. Um, I've got crazy flexibility in my hamstrings. I'm going to tell you guys a story. How This is how you get flexible hamstrings, okay? This is how I did it. This is very simple. So I was in, I was in track in high school, and I had a track coach. Um, the assistant coach, who was a very attractive female, she was very well endowed. This is the big key right here. And, um, <laughs> sold it right away. So she would say, okay, everybody pick a partner. And I would always make sure I didn't have a partner. Cause then people, she would stretch you. So she would stretch me. <laughs> All right. So we do the hamstring Brilliant. stretch. So we're laying on our back. She's pushing my leg back and I'm like closer closer I, yeah. I still don't feel anything till her <laughs> till her chest was right in my face so i didn't care how bad my hamstrings hurt i wanted her close i wanted those boobs right in my face right so i got crazy flexible hamstrings from from my track coach and to this day they're super flexible that's how you do it <laughs> take, <Wow>. take <laughs> notes kids <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna tell my girlfriend when i get home yeah <laughs> excellent well cool man it's been fun brother yes yeah, yeah thanks yeah. for having me man. thanks for coming on yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely it. thank you for listening to mind pump if your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump. <laughs>